0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at iaslc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. I am honored to be joined today by Dr. Tetsuya Mitsudomi. Dr. Mitsudomi is professor in the Division of Thoracic Surgery at Kindai University in Osaka, Sayama, Japan. He's also the current IASLC president. Tetsuya, thank you for taking the time to join us today.
1: Hi, Stephen. I'm so honored to be here, and uh, I'm, I'm a bit excited and also
0: nervous, but I'm really forward uh, to speaking with you. Thank you. Likewise, quite a tweet. It's been a, it's been a while since we've seen each other. <laughs> In this episode of, of our podcast, we're going to focus on an important target, KRAS. In the past year, we have seen extremely promising results with some new targeted agents for non-small cell lung cancer harboring a KRAS G12C mutation. Long thought undruggable, we have agents now likely on the cusp of approval for this challenging subset of lung cancer. Tetsuya, can we start for the audience by maybe reviewing some of the data? Uh, at the uh, WCLC 2020, we saw the results from Dr. Bob Lee from Code Break 100. Can you help us review some of those data?
1: Yeah, of course. The Dr. Bob Lee from Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, presented his data about the KRAS G12C specific inhibitor sotorasib. The trial name is Code Break 100, uh, this registration phase two trial, and in in this trial, uh, 126 patients with uh, a line cancer, non-small cell cancer with KRAS G12C, which is glycine to cysteine mutations at codon 12, was recruited, and sotrasib uh, at those uh, dose of the 960 milligrams was administered. And those, those patients were heavily pretreated, about 43 percent are receiving as a second-line treatment, 35 percent third-line was line, 23 tra- uh, percent. And, uh, the result was really amazing that the response rate, confirmed objective response rate was 37.1% and the only 16.1% had the progressive disease. So that means uh, 80.6% was disease control rate. And, uh, progression-free, medium progression-free survivors, 6.8 months. So that was, uh, Longer compared to the other uh, chemotherapeutic trials for the patients with KRAS mutations, and uh, in terms of the safety, treatment-related AE was uh, not so great, uh, not so often. Any event, any grade was observed as about seventy percent, and grade three is twenty a, a little bit less than twenty percent, and no fatal uh, treatment-related is... A occurred and the treatment discontinuation was in uh, was observed in 7.1% of the patients, and the dose modification is also 22%. And he also presented some uh, exploratory data about the relationship between the PDR1 status or Keep 1 SDK11. And there appears some interesting signals. For example, the, the, the response rate appears to be lower for the patients with a higher PDR1 expression, but the, obviously the number of the patients is still small, so we have to stay tuned. So then in conclusion, the Sotrace, uh, the first GWC specific impedance showed a very, uh, very promising activity against the patients with non- non Sorry or cancer patients with the GTRC Kras
0: c mutations. I, I think that's my take. Yeah, pretty pretty remarkable efficacy. I, I share your enthusiasm here. We've got pretty high response rates, as you mentioned, very heavily pretreated, eighty-one percent with with prior chemo and prior IO, so very heavily pretreated, and and it's nice to see a, a clear signal and you know that paradigm we look for, where you see uh, a good response rate and, and a very favorable safety profile, giving you that big. Therapeutic window—that's that's really what we've been missing for KRAS. You no, know, over the past year, we've also seen a little bit of early data for a different KRAS G12C inhibitor. Yes, um, can you tell us a little bit about the the other drug on the horizon?
1: Yeah, okay, that that is uh, MRTX849, and now it's called Adagrasib. It's very difficult to say, but uh, <laughs> that data was presented last year by Dr. Passiani. And in this uh smaller phase one to trial, so the available patients was fifty one I guess and the response rate was forty five percent and the disease control rate was ninety six percent. So that is really amazing and even better than the numerically better than the, what I described about uh uh but uh, obviously the number of the patients is smaller but i, I think that it's a similarly active drug against g2c and if you see the structure of the, those drugs it's a bit different uh, as far as i feel. so these drugs may have the somewhat complementary roles but anyway uh, we we should wait for the uh, newer data well Patients, newer data with more patients in this drug too. And I, I heard that uh, many other KRAS-G
0: is also being developed by other pharmaceutical companies. Oh yeah, I, I get that sense too, that we're really on the, on the, on the, the wave of a lot of other KRAS drugs and some pan-KRAS drugs that also look pretty mm-hmm. encouraging. But certainly these two farthest along and, you know, see I can tell from, from your voice, you're very excited about these. Uh, and I also find these data encouraging, but maybe play devil's advocate here. The response rate we're seeing here, if we look at the code break 100, sort of in the high 30s, uh, it's better than chemo, but it does seem lower than our other targeted yeah, drugs like smertinib, like lectinib. Do you, you care to comment on that? Is that the right frame of reference we should be using?
1: Yeah, I, I actually, I checked uh, the several other trials in that was performed for the uh, those secondary and third line setting. So one was a reverse trial, which is uh, for the second line, not limited to the KRAS, but in this trial, the cetuximab arm had the PFS for, is four point five months and uh, OS ten point five months. And, uh, in the, a, in the a specific trial, like select trial, which is, uh, the docetaxel versus docetaxel plus sermatinib, which is MEK inhibitor. The PF for the doceloma is 2.8 and the plus was is 3.9. And the other trial, Juniper trial is, uh, comparing the erlotinib versus, uh, grip, which is a CDK for six inhibitors. And the PFS for the experimental abeyma is 3.6 months. So the older trials showed the, uh, in the range of the three to four months for the, uh, in terms of the PFS compared to the 6.8 months of the Sotracev trial. So, so I think the Sotracev is, is superior to those drugs. But if, when you compare the other targets, maybe like, uh, inhibitors, these days, the PFS of the R inhibitors or EGFR inhibitors is very long, like reaching to 20 or more a month. So compared to these drugs, the Sotrasi PFS appears a bit shorter. Mm. But I mean, the dependence of the tumors on the certain oncogenes are different depending on the oncogene itself. So that I think the dependence for the KRAS is relatively smaller compared to the, in the case of the ALK or ROS1 or maybe EGFR.
0: How, how okay. do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that what, you know, what, what you're really illustrating is that when we think of targeted therapy, we'll make comparisons to EGFR to ALK, but maybe that's not really the right comparison mm-hmm. because for KRAS lung without these agents, as you mentioned, our, our most active combo would be docetaxel and serumab, and you know. And if you look at other combinations just in that KRAS subset, you know the acid numbers look even more impressive. So, yep. uh, a very encouraging. Um, but you know that thirty-seven percent response rate. Do we think that that number is high enough to use this drug in the first line setting?
1: Yeah, I wonder, I mean, many people also wonder the, the, if we can use the, recommend the Sotras in monotherapy as the first line therapy. So the, I mean, the many people are developing the combination therapy, including the KLSG2C inhibitors. So the, but we don't have the uh, best partner to the if we don't know. Maybe chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or downstream inhibitor, like a uh, inhibitor, or the SOS1 inhibitor, cp 2 inhibitor, there are many. So, but who knows who, who, what is the best
0: at this moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. So different combinations to explore. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the future looks promising and it, it's good to, it's good to have an active drug. Mm-hmm. So these drugs not yet approved, but certainly exciting, good response rates, excellent safety profile combinations under investigation. You know, these data are, are impressive, but they're only for KRAS G12C and, and the mm-hmm. drug really depends on that cysteine being there. Can, can you remind us how common is G12C?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the g 12 c is the most common KRAS mutations in lankins, but not in coron. As well as I know, the, the G2C accounts for about 30 to 40% of the KRAS mutations in, occurring in lung cancer, but uh, about 10%, I guess, in the case of the colon cancer. The reason why is g 2 c is, is uh, if you see the codon of the acid, it, it's GGT to TGT. So the G to T transversion should should have occurred to make g 212 c mutation and a G2T transversion so in this case guanine to thymine transversion is uh, very famous for the mutations caused by the benzpyrene and aromatic hydrocarbons so that what is contained in the tobacco smokes so that's why the uh, G2T mutations common in uh, smoking related cancer including lung, lung cancer so we are sort of lucky to have the many GTVC mutations
0: in lung Ah, but but you expect these primarily in smoking-related cancers, I see. right? You know, and just to to give a sense here, so we can take a step back. Can you comment maybe on the impact of sotorasib or adagrasib when they're approved? How, how big of a deal are these drugs? Yes,
1: I think the KRAS mutation incidence itself is different among the Caucasian patients and Asian patients. And in a Caucasian, yes, the KRAS is present about 30% of the patients with adenocarcinoma rank. But in contrast, in Asian or non-Caucasian patient populations, uh, KRAS mutations like in the range of ten percent, so it's kind of the opposite status uh, in the case of the EGFR mutation. EGFR is common in our patients, and it's relatively rare in the uh, Caucasian patients. So that's very interesting. And but considering that uh, uh, about thirty percent of the Caucasian uh, adenocarcinoma patients has KRS, and about one third. Will be the g 2 so So, in total, about 10%, one in 10 adenocarcinoma patients in the Western world will have the benefit from the saturasi or the aggrasi.
0: Wow. So, geographic differences, I, I didn't really consider that. Mm-hmm.
1: It's very interesting, Yami. Yeah. We don't see the such kind of difference in the other drivers, like uh, our gross one,
0: right? Right. Right. Interesting. You always, always blow me away with just the. A wealth of knowledge Now this is not a new oncogene. You know KRAS was really one of the first it's very or very old. So why has it taken it so long to to get a targeted agent here?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting I think to to think why the KRAS has been so difficult to be targeted. It is I think when I uh, looked up in the in the book it was originally crowned in, uh, in, in the C, and uh, serial KRAS was crowned in 1982, I guess, and the point of mutation, the cancer was identified in 1983, so it's like uh, about uh, 40, 30-something year old, maybe as old as you, yeah. Yes, <laughs> Stephen, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the people, now, so the initial uh, strategy to inhibit keras was to inhibit the uh membrane binding of the Keras. Keras should be bound in the inside of the plasma membrane of the cells. And in this process the furnace of the C terminal uh of the Keras protein was required. So the and the, this one of the enzymes to to responsible for this binding was the furnace Farnesyl transferase. And the farnesyl transferase was inhibited by the statins, which was used for the hyperlipidemia, hypercholesterolemia. So that I remember when I was um, studying the kerosene back in the nineties. Maybe we talk this uh, time later, but uh, one of my, um, my teacher was uh, studying the, uh, Mm -hmm robot study, yes, uh, whether the robot can inhibit the KRS-positive lung cell lines, but it didn't work. Because uh, <laughs> later it turned out that the uh, that that kind of the uh, membrane binding was very complex and there is a, some uh, alternative pathway. In this case, if you inhibit the furnace transferase, then the general general translation occurs. So that will bypass the blockade of the furnace transferase. Then then the next strategy was to inhibit the downstream pathway like arc uh, pathway. But I, again, the RAS downstream pathway is so complex and so redundant, it it didn't work very well. And also the several investigators found to, uh, several investigators to try to find a synthetic lethal genes, which means that uh, if you inhibit some genes in the KRAS positive tumors, some, in some cases, the cell may die. So if you find that such kind of the gene, Which is a synthetic lethal gene. You may treat the patients with Keras and uh, a lot of the genes were listed as a synthetic lethal gene. But that means, I mean, there are many. That means the, all the Keras is not same and uh, this strategy does not work as well. Very well. I mean, the CDK46 inhibitor was, uh, I previously Talk, talked about uh, c d k four other aggressive sorry CDK, abema c grip c 46 inhibitor a trial abema grip so that c 46 four six is also found as a synthetic research gene, but it didn't work in the human then dr Shokata, i guess the group found the g two c inhibitors and the G12C is cysteine, and the cysteine has the capacity to form a, a covalent bond with the drugs. And also it can fit the, the pocket near the uh, switch to, so-called switch to region of the KRS. Otherwise, it is very difficult to find a pocket that can fit the, fit the certain drug. So that's why the uh, direct input of the KRS. Was very difficult to develop. But in this case, they found a, a nice pocket and the drug can bind by the covalent bond bindings to the KRAS in the case of the G2MC. So that's my understanding.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's quite a, quite a history there. And you know, the synthetic lethality is always so appealing, but you're right. It, it often works in vitro. Quite yeah. well but then when we introduce it in the patients much much more complex now clearly you've you've condensed decades of history into to just a few minutes
1: uh, also i i would like to uh, note that uh, not all the kras mutations i mean uh, not all the lung cancer with kras mutations are dependent on the kras activity which was shown by the uh, shrna experiment so if you treat uh, cells with kras mutations with uh, shrna targeted to KRAS. If the cells are completely dependent on the KRAS, they should die, but not all the cells, cell die upon uh, um, KRAS, SH RNA treatments. And uh, there's some uh, observation that those cells has uh, EMT phenotypes, so epithelial mesenchymal phenotype. So that those cells uh, Appears not dependent on the KRAS, so they even with the sotorasib w- w- would not work for this kind of the p- uh, cancer with the mesenchymal phenotype. So uh-huh. that's very interesting. I don't know the exact mechanism, but uh, at least you can you can you may be able to select the patients who will be benefit more from
0: the sotorasib. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, we see a a good response rate, 37%. But when you look at that swimmers plot, there are some people that are really, you know, going strong at a year and some that are a little shorter. Maybe we can refine that population. Right. So heterogeneous, right? Yeah, very, very much. So I can tell you you have a personal connection to this subset. And if I recall correctly, a lot of your early lab work was in KRAS. Is that right?
1: Yes. I mean, I spend, uh, about two years in uh, NACI, maybe, the NCI, Navy, that is the Maryland. And uh, my boss was Dr. Late Dr. Adi Oh, yeah. And, uh, very interesting that, uh, I was a postdoctoral fellow at that time. And, uh, next to me, the Dr. Baby Giacone was there. Yes, so of course. So you are both, right? <laughs> yes. And uh, my first, Subject was uh, the Keras mutation. So I studied, uh, I mean, I examined the presence of the Keras mutation in the many NCIH cell lines. And also, there is a lot of the small cell lines. So so I may be the first to describe the small cell line cancer that doesn't have the Keras mutations.
0: Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) And and we also noted that the G2T transversion is frequent in the lung cancer cell lines and compared to the other tumors in the literature. And also we found that the Keras mutation has, uh, I mean, actually the first one that described the k mutation as a prognostic factor was a Dutch group led by the Dr. Rodenhorst, but we are able to confirm that the k mutation is poor prognostic marker. Even in the RAS mutation in the cell line, the, the prognosis of the general patients was poor if the tumor has the K-RAS mutations. I mean, sort of. The, that's the of the first experience for me to do the molecular biology studies in lung cancer.
0: Well, it's it's an important group to to focus on, and here we are now with you know probably multiple drugs likely to be approved here. And to me, this is this is a really important conversation to I mean, we're going to have you know targeted drugs approved that they're, they're going to have solid response rates, be well tolerated, very important options for our patients. But I think as as investigators. We have to remember the road that got us here, because you know all of this work is going to be important as we further refine our population, as we try to hone down our predictive biomarkers more, and as we try mm-hmm. to introduce these in the frontline setting. We can't forget uh, all all the lessons we learned along the way. Big impact in the field. Katuya, this has been this has been great. But if I could maybe just take a little more of your time, could you share a little bit about your own personal career path? Uh, you trained as a surgeon <laughs> and as a basic scientist, correct?
1: Yes, I mean, when I um, I was a medical student, I'm I mean, uh, I was um, very uh, how can I say? I mean, I was um, n- not very sure whether I, I can be a I be a surgeon. I would be a surgeon or an internist or. But finally, at that time in Japan, the, the cancer was uh, mostly treated by surgeons, so I. I Initial, um, motive to, to, uh, choose surgery was, um, because I wanted to be a cancer doctor. So that's why I eventually chose, uh, surgery. And, uh, it was, I mean, it's very, uh, fun to, uh, see myself to improve in the surgical skills. But uh, even with, uh, I have the, uh, what, Number one surgical skills—it's it, not possible to cure all the, the patients. So I thought it's necessary to learn about the basic science of the cancer. So when I was a, a graduate student, I uh, I did uh, some uh, cell cycle studies using the cultural science When then I returned to the surgical practice, then then I had the opportunity to, to study abroad. And so the reason why I chose the Edith or John's, John Mina's laboratory, but uh, they developed a lot of cell lines and they're the starting to use the PCR technique to examine the, the mutations of, of oncogene or tumor-suppressive mutations. So that's why I joined that laboratory. It was very lucky that they accepted me and uh, that was from uh, 89, yes. And uh, 89 is the year that the mutation in the lung cancer was discovered by, by Tak Takahashi, who is now in Edge cancer center, but uh, in, in the John Mina's laboratory. And then I studied RAS. And uh, I mean, which actually formed my basis of the, as a researcher, surgeon scientist basis was formed at that time. And then after I came back to Japan and I started to, to make a a tissue bank, sort of, and studied a lot of the genes for the, whether it is, uh, it is, uh, whether it reflects the clinical behaviors, uh, tumors in the patients. And I I described uh, several prognosis factors, but uh, in general, those prognosis factors is not so strong and uh, sometimes not reproducible. So kind of a, I mean, I started to be a little bit disappointed. Then the, uh, 2002, Jeff was approved in Japan, so which was, uh, the first in the world. Then, and I was so amazed that some patients responded so nicely, but other patients did not respond at all. So there must be something. And I, I also searched for the several uh, biomarkers to predict the uh, response, but uh, of course we could not. But, uh, 2004, the, the and Yannis group, uh, Tom Lynch's group, uh, William Powell's group published the paper that described the EGR mutation can be the predictive factor for the EGR TK. So the, I, uh, we started to study the EGR mutation in uh, already um, accumulated samples, surgical samples, and we are able to publish the uh, the results of the EGR mutation, and also we confirmed the, their findings that the EGR mutation is a strong predictor of the EGRT TGS. It was lucky that the EGR mutation, as I told you, uh, is frequent in the Japanese population, so it's uh, easy to find many patients with EGR mutation. Then, I was so again so lucky to be a PI for the clinical trials comparing the EGFR TKI with chemotherapy platinum doublet chemotherapy in our WJTOG trial. So, so that forms my uh, my scientific basis leading uh, to the clinical studies, and uh, that was originated from the uh, my NCI
0: life dates. Well, the, yeah, I don't think we can overstate the impact that, that lab, you know, that Dr. Gazdar and Dr. Mendes Right, lab, Yeah, it's so really,
1: a pity that we lose uh, Addy two years ago. Yeah,
0: no, but the the impact on the whole field, I mean, the whole field was really born in that lab, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you, you, so you keep saying that you're, you, you've been very lucky to be in all these places. I get the sense that, uh, it's a little bit more than luck. And so, uh, certainly very, very humble of you, but you know, we, we make our own luck, I guess, as Billy Zane says. <laughs> so, you know, ISLC really stresses the importance of a multidisciplinary approach to, to lung cancer and engagement of thoracic surgeons is really critical to advancing the field. I know it's a passion of yours. Any advice for young surgeons who might be listening who are interested in a, a research career?
1: Yeah. So. I think that the, the multidisciplinary nature, I like the multidisciplinary nature of the C very much because uh, I'm kind of the, I mean, sort of in-between person, right? <laughs> I do the surgery, I do the research, I do the drug therapy. But, uh, through that kind of the uh, knowledge or interaction with the different field of pe- people in, for the different subjects will make you very stronger. So, i hope that many young surgeons are also interested in the basic aspect of the study which is very interesting also i know that uh, robotic surgery or bats or single pole bats is also interesting but at the same time i mean the basic science of the cancer in general and and uh, its application to the clinical, I mean, the treatment for the patients is very interesting, and you can do that relatively easily. So that, and uh, on the other hand, and the patients who is a candidate for the surgery is very closest for the cure. So that before we cu- are able to cure the patients by the drug therapy, I mean, stage four patients with drug therapy, we may be able to uh, cure the earlier stage patients. It's easy, more easily, easy, more easier. So I, I hope that every young surgeon will have the uh, experience with the basic sensing for a certain period of time and then incorporate those knowledge to the future surgical therapy of the lung cancer.
0: It's, it's really is a challenge to do both. I think you do both quite well. Let's <laughs> yeah. say. And you know, all while managing many other roles, you're also the ISLC president during a pretty eventful year. Any reflections on how the ISLC has adapted during this COVID pandemic?
1: Yes. I mean, so as you know that all the meeting meetings was transformed to the virtual meetings and the virtual so you may be a little bit uh, tired of the virtual meeting but the virtual meetings also has a very uh, very good things and and uh, you can attend every meeting from from your own country so those kind of things are very good so that's uh, one of the mitigation for isrc and uh, and uh, also the office members including Including the Band, who is in charge of the this podcast, is a uh, frustrating too. So they have to work from home. But uh, I mean, the office management was well done during this uh, this uh, pandemic. And uh, yet, uh, the scientific projects, like uh, staging major pathological response or it, uh, early Lang imaging confederation, which is making the uh, imaging. CT Imaging Database, creating the CT Imaging Database uh, on the web, and other uh, assigned projects are uh, uh, actively pursuing. So that we, we don't actually do not uh, reduce our activity as an association and uh, keeping the motivation of the all the
0: members is a great thing. They've really done a great job in and very impressive as how you've been able to maintain productivity here. Uh, on a similar note, you know, Tetsuya, before we finish, congratulations are certainly warranted for a wonderful WCLC, which as you mentioned, had to be virtual this year. You know, I always like to hear about people's experiences. It's always been a great meeting for me. Is there a WCLC meeting that sort of stands out fresh in your own memory?
1: Oh, I mean, the, the past WCLC? Yeah.
0: Okay. Or, or prior yeah. meetings is, is there a particular meeting that that's particularly memorable? Yeah,
1: I mean the, yeah, memorable many. I mean the my first WCLC was uh, 2000, yeah, 2000 in Tokyo. That was my first attendance to the WCLC. And uh, and uh, since then I attended every WCLC meetings and uh, everyone is very impressive. I mean when I first present my data in uh, the auditorium, It's a really, I mean, exciting and uh, rewarding experience. And also outside the WCS, there's a lot of the uh, smaller meetings. And I was really impressed uh, at the tiger therapy meeting, which was uh, organized by um, by Fred Hirsch or Paul Bunn. One time it was in the uh, Taormina in Sicily. So it's very, uh, very nice place. And uh, was so impressive to me. I I I can't remember exactly what I learned in that meeting, but <laughs> I clearly remember the very uh, nice uh, scenario there.
0: I'm sure you learned very very important lessons. But uh, um yeah, we'll look forward to to meeting in person again, uh, hopefully soon. So, Tetsuya, r- wrapping up this podcast, I want to thank you for your time, uh, for your insights, for for all the great work that you've done. And certainly we want to thank the audience for listening. Don't forget to like the podcast and share it with your colleagues and friends. Please stay safe and be well. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.